Good morning. We're in Isaiah chapter 51. Uh, If you have a church Bible, that's page 395. I'll give you a moment to get there. As our family is expecting baby number three, the anticipation is driving my other two children crazy. At this point, nearly every waiter and waitress and checkout clerk in State College has heard this statement, my mom is going to have a baby. And when we come back the next week, they hear it again. They anticipate whether it will be a a boy or a girl. My wife and I anticipate whether we're going to keep our pink basement or whether we're going to swap it out for a blue basement. And the anticipation brings something else. There are often many moments, especially late at night, where I'm anticipating hard things. What kind of world will my little one grow up in? That's how expectation works. When you're expecting something, you don't know all the details, and so there's this strange mix of joy and tension. And at the time of the writing of the text that we're about to read, Israel is expecting something huge. They're waiting for the one that God is sending. His appointed servant, and if you're a visitor here, that means Jesus. But they don't know that yet. And their mix of tension and joy is very high because they are both in a very difficult situation. That's Babylonian captivity. And they do not know all the details of God's plan. Joy and tension. All they know is that somehow they're going to be both rescued from captivity and they're going to be restored to God. And this servant plays a part and the whole world is going to benefit in some way. And all of this will somehow come through the servant's rejection. How is this possible? They might have asked as they prepared to read the words that we're about to read. Isaiah is building the tension and this week it's going to grow some more and next week it's going to grow even more until finally the servant will be revealed. And for most of you, This text will clarify some details about the salvation that you already have. And I hope 
it will build anticipation in you as well for what is going to come. For some of you, today, you might simply understand why salvation is so important. Either way, may your anticipation grow. But first, let's see Israel's anticipation grow. Because they're going to learn two key things today, and those things are on your outline. First, they're going to learn that this salvation coming is a promise from God. It extends all the way back to Israel's beginning, in fact. And it goes very far into the future. Second, this God is a God of salvation. So in other words, salvation is at the very heart of who God is. And so, like an expectant father, hearing this news will spark both joy and tension as God's people expectantly wait. Let's read the first eight verses of Isaiah chapter 51. As we see God promising salvation. Listen to me, you who speak and pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice as a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the, worm, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. The first way that God builds anticipation is by showing us that salvation is for two audiences. 
And audience number one is his people. That's Israel. Verse one tells God's people to look back to a rock from which they were hewn. And this rock is clarified in verse 2 as Abraham, their father. To an infinite degree, Abraham is like if you had a famous ancestor that you couldn't help but name drop in every conversation. Abraham was their pride. But what Isaiah does here is tell Israel that Abraham is not the point. This is explained at the end of verse 2. For he was but one. He was but one when I called him. I'm going to pause for clarity because an Israelite or a Sunday school kid would make an instant connection to this that some of us might miss. Because Abraham was not simply one man. He was one man with no child. And he and his wife Sarah, who is also named here, were both really old. I'm 40. He was twice that. I have two kids already. He had nothing. There was no rock to cut from. All that Abraham and Sarah had was a promise from God. And then God gave them a child. How was it possible at 80? Because Sarah laughed when she heard of it. The rock was built on a promise from God. That's the point. That's why there's a quarry in the first place. And Isaiah quotes the reason for this promise at the end of verse 2. That I might bless him and multiply him. So the promise of a child got bigger and bigger. And all of Israel in Babylon reading this is part of that promise. And if it's going to continue, it can't end in Babylon. The anticipation continues to build as Israel looks back and remembers what God has done. And in the next verse, we see it build more. And then even more after that as we look at the second audience. But first, verse 3. The promise is more than just people. Restoration is coming. The complete restoration of everything... That has been destroyed. Look at the verse. God will comfort all of her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. So God is going to restore restore life. Not simply 
as though her, her, his people were never exiled to Babylon. God's going to restore life as though his people were never exiled out of Eden. He's bringing that back. And not just a geographic return. But God is going to make the desert like the garden of the Lord. It's redemptive. In other words, this whole messy world will become like Eden. The whole world. This is so much bigger than Jerusalem just getting fixed up. That's all that Israel wanted. The anticipation builds even more with audience number two. The joy in verses four and six. Audience number two is the world. Or everyone among God's people that is not Israel. God is going to give them, according to verses 4 and 5, His law, His justice, His righteousness, His salvation, and His judgment. This promise just got really big. Imagine an Israelite reading that, pausing, looking up, looking around in the middle of Babylon. All the false idols, all the power. And then, imagine an Israelite thinking back to all of God's enemies, the Philistines, Egypt. How will they coexist with God's law? How will they survive God's judgment? How is this possible? They don't know yet. All they know now is that the promise of this salvation is pointing ahead to a restored world and it's for a global audience. So as verse 5 rightly says, the coastlands hope and they wait. How is this possible? We don't know. We look back, God's done it. So what's next? Because this, this expectation has brought a, a certain joy and a little tension, but now things are about to get a bit more tense. Look at verse 6. Because God tells his people to look up and around, not just at Babylon, but at the whole earth. The heavens vanish, the text says, and the earth wears out, and so will people. So before this glad ending, 
will come much unhappiness. Very much unhappiness. And death. Who survives? We're still in verse 6. My righteousness will be forever. And my salvation to all generations. If you're a fan of universalism, where you think one day everyone's just going to meet up in the sky, think again. The only people who survive, according to these, these verses, are those under the salvation. That's it. Everything and everyone else will pass away. And in the meantime, Israel, as you wait, in verse 7, those people will hate you. Do you see that? They will bring reproach and revilings. So, there's a restored world coming, but it'll be preceded by much death, and that'll be preceded with much rejection. You could imagine the tension in Israel as they consider this part of the promise. I mean, couldn't we have stopped in verse 5? No. Because God's in control, which is why the application God gives to his people here in verse 7 is fear God and not men. It doesn't say exactly that in verse 7, but I'm going to get there. Salvation is what they're called to keep their eyes on. Keep your eyes fixed on that promise. The author of that promise. That's where your expectation should be pointed. Through much waiting... And much rejection. It will come. Do you feel that anticipation? I do. Because Israel wasn't even sent out yet. A strange world seems to be ahead for them. But this is not strange to God. This is actually who he is. Because God doesn't just promise salvation. He is a God of salvation. So as this promise builds and builds and all the people wait with this strange combination of joy and tension... God will guide them. He'll draw near to his people. And he will comfort them until the end. That's point two. God is a God of salvation. 
You get a peek into Israel, responding, struggling, drawing near, and God just working with them. So 9 through 16 is our next portion, but I'm going to focus on 9 through 11 first. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old. The generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed to pass over, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing? Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, I'm not sure if those three verses was a song or a poem or some guided reading for the people. But what this is, is it's the voice of Israel and they're moving towards God. And this is incredible if you've been reading Isaiah because so far, they haven't done this. Their cry, their song has been, where are you, God? Something is going to change. God and his prophets won't simply have to just keep telling them and telling them to look back. One day they're going to do it. Look at what they're doing. In verses 9 and 10, they're remembering the exodus. Now verse 10 might look obvious. God drying up the waters of the Red Sea, making a way through. You might never have set, a, set foot in a church, and you might know, I know what that is. But verse 9 might look less clear. Especially the phrase, you cut Rahab in pieces and you pierce the dragon. What is that? Well, I don't know. <laughs> but there are many good commentators out there. <laughs> and one of them took a swing... And pointed out that Rahab was a nickname for Egyptian money. So, remember the treasure that God's people divided when they left. And the suggestion is that the dragon pierced refers to Pharaoh. And in light of the previous verse, the Exodus, that makes sense. But, in any event, even if I'm wrong about verse 9, it doesn't matter. Because the point is, someone was against God, and God said, no. And he rescued his people, and he brought them out across the Red Sea. And 
God's people are calling out to God once again. Hey, remember that? You made us a nation. You rescued us. You beat the enemy. Do it again. You promised. And for that reason, these verses are to be celebrated. Because it's so easy for you to look at what Israel's doing and then they're like, hey God, remember. And it's so easy to think like, what are you doing, Israel? Well, finally, this is good news. This is good news. Because when they do this, when they look back, then, in verse 11, they look ahead. They're prepared for what's to come. A restored world. The one we just read about, because God repeats it in verse 11. The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. They're taking the promise of Exodus and they're saying that's part of the promise to come. They're making the connection. That is good news. And one day they're going to do that. Little Israel in Babylon. Praise God. Looks a bit more possible now. But what about God's law? Israel has quite the track record of failure. And if you look around, or you have kids, you know that people fall short of the law. Even Christians. What happens when God says, do not be afraid And you fear. Is it all over? What happens when the singing stops? Do you lose the promise? No. The next verses will prove it. Verses 12 through 16. I... This is the Lord talking back to his people. I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the son of man who is made like grass. And have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day. Because of the wrath of the oppressor. When he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? He who is bowed down. Shall speedily be released. He shall not die. And go down to the pit. Neither shall his bread be lacking. I am the Lord your God. Who stirs up the sea. So that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words in your mouth and covered you in the shadow of my hand, establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to God, you are my people. God comforts his people in their fear. Because this audience, these are the people that are moving towards the Lord. This isn't just everybody. This is God's people. 
and they're failing. And he comforts them. And do you see how he did it? He comforts them not by telling them how great they are. He comforts them by telling them how great he is. In verse 12, he's mocking the oppressors by comparing them to grass. He's moving the reader's mind back to the promise we read earlier where those not under salvation wither away. Don't fear them. Think about who they are. In verse 13, he then contrasts those oppressors to himself who made all things, including grass. And in verse 14, he's sustaining his people and their heads are bowed down. All they're doing is praying. That's all they got. They're clinging to God. In some ways, I think that's the best place that they could be. They're clinging to God who is the God in verse 16 has put his words in their mouths and covered them in the shadow of his hand. Establishing the heavens and laying the foundations of the earth and saying to Zion, you are my people. Bowed down, cowering. You're my people. Faithfulness. <coughs> the joy and the tension that this brings to God's people. You know, just as I look forward to our new child, I anticipate what's God going to do with our kids? What's He going to do? Because they're, they're growing. And they're learning to to trust us. (laughs) And they're reading. They're reading their Bibles now. They can read. I joyfully think, how is this possible? I mean, 10 years ago, you hand me a baby. I don't know what to do. (laughs) I would just shrug. I just fear I'm going to break it. Someday I look ahead, God could reach the nations through my kids. How is this possible? The joy found in expectation, but the tension that comes with that too. What if one of my daughters, or if I have a son, And they grow up and they become a missionary. And on some island, far from home, maybe long after I'm gone, somebody pulls a weapon on her and she is afraid. I can't help her. And she thinks we're supposed to make disciples of all nations. How is this 
possible. The tension that comes with not knowing all the details. What about you? Maybe you want to reach your neighbors. Or you just want to tell your family. You want them to know the Lord. And the doors just keep slamming. And they look at you and they say, you still believe that? God stuff? And now, maybe you can barely open your Bible. Because it feels like it weighs a thousand pounds. And full of fear, you say, God, how is this possible? It's possible only by the servant, Jesus. The promise made at the very beginning of Israel, and even farther back if we're honest, going right through Abraham, through Israel, through you, and all the way to eternity. And we're just little blips on the radar. And that's fine. God is so much bigger. Outside of time and yet working every last detail. Jeff shared that. And you can see it all over this promise. So how does this apply? Expect God. Look back at the promises of this text. Because you might not even get home without forgetting them. And you might look more like verses 9 through 11. Calling out to God and pouring over promises with joy. You promised. And if that's you, keep it up. Expect God. But on the other hand, maybe you look more like verses 12 through 16. And you are so full of fear all day long. And all you got is you can pray. Fine. Do that. Because even in your failure, God is a God that won't fail. He made the promise of salvation. He cares about it more than you do. He promises salvation. Because he is a God of salvation. Expect that. No matter how big the enemies seem, the rejection, no matter how big that seems, salvation will come. 
after all the enemies go away. And that will last forever. And I realize that if you're just getting to know Christianity, you actually need to have a different expectation. For you, consider verse 6. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and they who dwell in it will die in like manner. If you are not a part of the salvation, that is what you can expect. But God's promise can change the rest of your story. Because the fulfillment of that promise, the bringer of that salvation, was Jesus, who we remember as we take communion. The bringer of salvation, who was rejected so that we could be accepted. Jesus, who actually cried out to God earnestly on the cross, but was not answered so that you could cry out to God and be answered. That Jesus. Jesus, whose obedience comforts us, even in our failure, with a reminder That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's take a moment and bow our heads. And then I'll lead us in communion. God, that you, the servant, would be rejected. The part of the promise that we love to think about. But so often we hate when that same rejection comes to us. Lord, would you change? Would you grow? Would you build our hearts? Would you give us eyes to see your promise? Help us to fix our eyes on eternity. So that we can endure this rejection in the same way that you did obediently. Amen.